Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of LGBTIQA living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Paul Bernaroni, I want to first of all start by thanking Main FM for the opportunity to be here and for the invitation to share my story. So I'm 57 in January. I live in Melbourne and I certainly have a lot of a heritage out in this region. And in fact, after this, I'm going to go and try and find the land of my great, great, great grandfather, I think, down in Malmesbury. The reason I'm here is because my sex chromosomes are XXY which nowadays is recognised to be an intersex variation, which means that I'm part of the LGBTIQA plus community. So that's a term I've only known of since I was 50 years old. And I've only known that I had XY sex chromosomes since I was about 28 or 29 years old. But having those chromosomes have impacted my life considerably since birth in a whole range of ways that will unfold during the course of today. Childhood is an interesting one, both my parents are now past, but I'll start with some information that my mum shared with me after I was able to talk to her about my challenges, which didn't happen until I was 30. But she shared with me that I had delayed development in a whole range of ways from birth I couldn't support my head fully in the normal time frame as a baby I nearly died actually from malnutrition I couldn't or wouldn't suckle from my mum I was put into an infirmary separated from my mother this is 1966 and uh, my grandmother was head nurse I think matron up at Muldura Hospital and she heard about this naturally and came down to Melbourne and basically retrieved me and mum and took us back up to Muldura and was watching me when mum tried to put me to the breast and noticed that I was actually turning away. So she wondered whether or not it was an olfactory problem and whether or not it was a smell or something else. So she decided to melt a chocolate frog or a birdie beetle or whatever. Probably not the beetle. They got something else in them, but into a glass of milk. And apparently I just lapped it up and... Quite literally, I was addicted to chocolate milk, seriously, into my late 20s, but perhaps that's a story for another time. But that was one of the first incidents. But beyond that as well, I crawled late, I walked late, uh, and I talked late. Mum shared that I had a language that I used to communicate with my parents, this is until kindergarten, that my older brother translated for my parents. Now, I don't know when that started or ended, but... That's the story, and I'd love to do hypnosis to find out what that language was. But then I came home from my first day at kindergarten and was verbose, if that's the word, speaking in sentences. And I was actually describing a pretty little girl at kindergarten and what she was wearing, how she looked, and all the way down to the 
little bows on her shoes and whatever else. I dare say that was my first crush. That little girl was in every single class I had and through to grade five and it was actually quite debilitating, which I might touch on a bit later about how I managed those sort of feelings. But yeah, and just to touch on that from childhood as well, I've my fontanelles on the skull never closed over and I've mentioned that to endocrinologists and stuff over the years and very recently I found a 2022 article from some research that, that talked about the fontanelles not closing over for children with sex chromosome variations in some cases and the reasons for that. So it's just another thing that perhaps could have been picked up along the way by paediatricians, not back then, but nowadays it could be. So that was anecdotal. It's interesting because I, the three brothers, and I'm in the middle, and but we're very close in age. So my younger brother is 16 months younger and my older brother is two years older. And we were close in age. And for me growing up, that had a massive impact in an early age on my body image and my sense of self-worth and things like that because I can remember doing it from a very early age, seven or eight years old, and it's captured in one photograph taken in a backyard by a professional photographer. But from an early age, I'd cross my arms, across my chest, and I'd use my thumbs to push my chest out and then I'd use the knuckles on the clenched fist to push my biceps out. And that's as early as seven or eight years old. And my brothers are sitting there in the picture next to me. And even though one's 16 months younger and one's two years older, they're starting to tone up. And again, I've since learned that children with XXY and other sex chromosome variations often have hypotonia, so a lack of tone and over time a lack of muscle development. That sort of experience was happening inside me, beating myself up about it, establishing strategies to look bigger and feel a bit more normal. 20 years before myself, let alone anyone else, actually ever knew about this genetic condition, for want of a better word. Our neighbours, they used to call us across to play cricket in the backyard, this stretch of concrete. And because of that hypertonia and lack of coordination, lack of strength, so on and so forth, I used to, and I have very strong memories actually, of staying in my lounge room and looking out at the window and peering across to my neighbours when they're starting to play the match and pick the teams or whatever, decide who was going to bat and bowl and field. And I can recall them calling my name to join them. And I would just wait as long as I possibly could until I just felt I had to join them because if I didn't join them, they'd ask why. The neighbours had a small grove of just maybe three or four kumquat trees just planted in the bottom corner of their lawn. And I used to feel down there because it was less likely the ball would come to me. And if I tried to bowl, I'd get a sore arm. If I tried to bat, I'd go out straight away and things like that. I was seven or eight nine years old and also for a period of that time we went to Church of England Boy Scouts so I was regardless of whether or not I had brothers there were plenty of opportunities for me to feel I was different in those early primary school years I avoided sport at all cost that was just embarrassing it certainly impacted because then like now schools encourage children to participate in sport or any kind of competitive activity. Actually, I had this thing when I was at that same age, and possibly a little younger, maybe six, seven, whenever my brothers like hit me or teased me or bumped into me, I used to cry and become emotional and say, now I have 62 nearly broken bones. 
I had this kind of mantra of how many nearly broken bones I had that maybe went on for six months and maybe went on for a few years. I really don't know. But I can remember quite clearly complaining to my brothers and saying, oh, thanks very much, Niva. You know, now I've got 99 nearly broken bones. So I must have felt very, I guess, inferior. Something was going on that I would come up with this response to being injured or whatever and perhaps feeling injured but then also just becoming so emotional and not continuing on so it was maybe an excuse for me not to continue in playing sport or something if I had a nearly broken bone. We moved from Park Orchards as it was uh, an outer eastern suburb of now Greater Melbourne and we moved to North Carlton and as a Celtic Australian background we were suddenly in the minority which in so many ways was a brilliant part of my social development and understanding acceptance of diversity and so forth. But on another hand, I was suddenly surrounded by Middle Eastern and Mediterranean guys who started to develop and enter puberty very quickly, it seemed, and and that was not happening for me. Then we spent a year in America when I was 11 or 12, and we lived in like a commune on a farm with five or six other families and singles and stuff, and they had open showers. So that for me was just unbearable. Also, I'll just mention in those years at Park Orchards, we used to go as a family to the Nutterwadian swimming pool during summer. And my father used to swim many laps. My, me and my brothers would just muck around the pool, whatever. But what my strong memory is that I always got out of the pool before my brothers and before my dad and changed so that I didn't have to be in the change room with them. So they couldn't see at that young age, I already knew that I wanted to hide away, that I didn't want anyone to see my groin because things didn't look the same for me as it did for other boys. So I was already developing strategies to hide away and and to avoid being seen at that young age. So then it got to North Carlton and America as well. And as the other kids started to develop, I just developed an absolute fear of change rooms, of ridicule that people would see me and point and stare and laugh. And it's not only that I feared that they would do that, but I didn't know why. I didn't know the way I was. But also my parents didn't know I was the way I was. My mum knew things as we went along in life. I had a whole lot of other illnesses along the way, lots of bronchitis every year and had to go and get my chest pummeled and all sorts of stuff were going on, just other sicknesses and asthma and stuff. And... My mum at one stage took me to a paediatrician in, at the Children's Hospital in Gatehouse Street in Melbourne. And many of the listeners may know the double story terraces along there where Ronald McDonald House is now. And I was probably 14 and I have absolutely vivid memories of being in that change room and being completely filled with fear that this doctor was going to require me to drop my underwear. It was 42 years ago and I can remember... I can visualise that waiting room. I can visualise standing in front of the doctor and he asked me to take all my clothes off but my underwear and told my mum that my puberty had been delayed and not to worry and there was never a follow-up. And I just felt absolute relief that for whatever reason he didn't check there. And I went home and continued to hide away, live my double life that no one else knew about. But I lived it every single day what clothes to wear, loose pants or everything I could do to not be noticed.
My sex chromosome variation is XXY. Instead of whereas typically males are XY and women are XX, mine are XXY. And it means that my body doesn't produce normal levels of testosterone. Whereas, depending on the age, the, let's put a scale of zero to 50, whereas a young male might be 20, I would have been five, and an older male might be 40, and I don't get above five even now. So I have to apply my testosterone every day as a gel, as I've done this morning. And But I didn't know about my being quiet until I was nearly 30. So I didn't have puberty. Like, I just, I didn't have that happen to me. Just to provide a little bit of context, again, around the fear and the anxiety about being seen, I avoided relationships as well. I never developed a social skills to even know how to progress a friendship beyond friendship, even though I was having attraction and wanting more. And so that was one thing that caused an enormous amount of anxiety for me throughout school and beyond. I remember when I was about 18, I had a heat rash between my legs and I went to see a doctor in North Carlton and he just glanced, like he had me on the table to figure out that I had a heat fungal infection or something. He probably gave me caniston or something. But before that, he just looked at me and said, gee, this doesn't look right. You may not be able to have children. You should come back next week for some tests. And I just freaked because that doctor basically was, I was being found out. And I left his surgery and not only did I not go back, but I had a genuine fear that if I ever walked past his surgery, he would see me through his window and come out and call me in for tests. And for two years, I walked one block either side. Such was my fear of being found out. I got a job, which was quite bizarre, really. I got a job when I was about 22 at Melbourne Zoo. That is definitely a story for another time. But during the course of that work, I ruptured a disc and had to have a fair bit of time off and eventually had to leave the work. And I did a couple of years of rehabilitation and the masseuses used to say, how can you not be building muscle and strength after all this work you're doing? But it didn't go any further, fortunately. But then I remember asking if Hatha yoga might be a good thing to do. And there was a meditation centre not far from where I was living. And so I started going to the meditation centre and three monks travelled from India and they offered a course called Freedom from Fear. And I took the course and by now I'm 28 years old. I've still got the notes all these years later. And it just gave me the insight into the nature of fear and that I had the inner capacity to deal with whatever might come from facing my fears. And so I plucked up the courage to ring the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre in Swanson Street and make an appointment. And keep in mind, I've never spoken to anyone before, ever. And I can vividly remember sitting at Lincoln Park next to a tree, hands sweating, just totally filled with fear and anxiety at this prospect of talking to someone. And I walked up the stairs from my appointment and walked up to the reception and just said my name, etc. And they just said, I'm sorry, sir, it doesn't appear we have a record of your appointment. You'll have to come back next week. I knew in that moment I would never return. I knew in that moment that I would continue to live my double life forever. I, of course, am not proud of it, but I threatened to throw that computer across the room. And I sat in that waiting room and saw someone two hours later. And I explained to this particular nurse a lot 
what I've shared today and so much more. And then she stopped and she said, so what do your parents think about this? I said, you haven't been listening. There are only two people who know and I know. This always brings up a lot of emotion for me when I recall this. I'd spent 20 plus years hiding away. I finally found the courage to talk about it and a lot of my frustration even now about not being heard when that happens is triggered, triggers this memory. And, uh, but when I said that to her, literally her jaw dropped and she said, okay, let's organise some tests, which we did straight away. So I can't remember what it was first. I think it might have even been a seminal. I don't know what it was, but probably a blood test. And then I actually went off to India for eight weeks after that and got the results when I came back. And when I was in India, I, having overcome the greatest fear of my life, which wasn't just talking about this, starting to share, but it was the fear of talking to my parents, particularly my mum for the first time, and thinking that she would think that she hadn't provided a loving enough environment for me to be comfortable to share. But when I was in India, there was all these other fears, fear of working with kids and fear of heights and all these other things, and I just kept being offered them at the major meditation centre. And it was uncanny. It was like every fear. And I didn't talk to anyone. Every fear just, can you climb this ladder and tie seven saris to the top of this circus tent type setup for kids? And can you teach kids sport for the activity program for the next eight weeks? It was so bizarre. And I just remember each time I would stop and out of habit go to say no and then remember what I'd just done back in Melbourne and say yes and get through it. So by the time I got back from India, I was in the perfect place to talk to my parents for the first time. And mum, as I said, always knew something wasn't quite right, didn't know why. She did think that she hadn't provided a loving enough environment and I just had to encourage her and assure her that she did. But I had developed a habit of hiding and procrastinating and every probably day but every year it just became compounded xxy individuals our testicles don't develop beyond the age of four and so they remain sparrow size and that's what i was seeing and comparing apart from not growing hair and having a, a greater weight distribution, like a fatty stomach and legs and other things that come with it. But it was all really about the testicles. So I thought I might have cancer or all these things that went through my head as to why. And that creates even more fear then. So I had a massive fear that I would be found to have cancer as well and other complications. And over the years, though, interestingly, I had convinced myself that I was, it was likely that I wouldn't be able to have children. And when I learned once I had been for, again, one of a better term, diagnosed. And the, and the language used by endocrinologists is Klein-Felter syndrome for XY individuals. So when I was diagnosed with that and they said I was infertile, I'd already come to terms with that and it didn't worry me. It worried a lot of other people. They immediately jump into, 
oh, you could adopt or you could do that. I can't think of anyone who's ever actually said, how was that for you? They just immediately start giving you advice. But having said that, there was an event in my early 30s where a group of us were gathered around a friend who was expecting their first child and we were all going to share poetry or a blessing or something for them as they stood in the middle. And I'd written a poem and I was writing a lot of poetry at the time. And when it came to me from deep, deep down in my soul, from a place that I didn't probably know existed, I just started wailing, uncontrollably cathartic wailing that was like literally like tsunamis of tears just came up from inside. And the attention was brought to me for a while and my friends were very new age and comforting and supportive and compassionate. And, uh, and some of them knew my story. And, and then one of my yoga friends, an elder, if you like, within the meditation world, said, just know that you have parented or fathered so many children through your previous lives. Your role in this life is to nurture all children. So, again, I, I, I love that I become emotional. I used to beat myself up so much as a teenager for, for crying at the drop of a hat running off to my room and then I'd lay crying in my room crying about the fact that I was crying and so sensitive and all the negative self-talk but come to learn that through my own reflection that when tears arise spontaneously in me it's like my soul saying thank you for speaking your truth thank you for having the courage to share your truth and so I feel it and I embody that that emotion and those tears and I think it's an enormous strength and that is part of me. It's part of everyone but it's not gendered or anything else. It just adds another little arrow to my quiver, if you like, to encourage other people to find the courage to speak their truth as I've learned to do. So I learned I was infertile and on one level, I suppose intellectually, I was comfortable with that and on another deeper level there was perhaps some heartache. I was in a relationship a few years ago where we decided that we would try to have a child and weirdly for an insect person with my variation in order to promote the production of potentially viable sperm in the same you have to go off your testosterone. I don't know the I don't know the ins and outs of that, pun unintended. But you do. And without testosterone we experience deep depression no libido and all this other stuff that I'd had all my life and then and it became actually so unbearable in our relationship actually and my then partner decided that she didn't want to go through the invasive sides of of IVF but for me had we continued then there's a procedure where surgically they try to harvest the I suppose the base without the tail or whatever's there so now they do what's called micro and they look through the folds to try to find under a probably electron microscope or whatever to retrieve viable sperm, which they then, I guess, freeze and whatever. And then post that, there's another procedure called ICSIA. I can't think what it is, but basically they then artificially inseminate the partner's ovaries with the sperm. What's interesting about that is the, these procedures, certainly the first procedure, under current Medicare levy legislations, rebates and so forth, is classed as cosmetic elective surgery. And 
therefore doesn't attract the Medicare rebates that procedures for women do. And so whilst we chose not to go down that path, I know people whose relationships have broken up because one partner wanted to have kids and the sex person couldn't or they couldn't afford the procedures. But had they had the same rebates under Medicare, they could have afforded to have a child. So it's clear discrimination. It's procedure that would apply to, I suspect, to transgender people. And that because historically there's been completely, of course, inappropriate perceptions that sexuality and gender and stuff like that is a choice. I guess they've also decided that choosing to, I don't know, have a child to, to raise a child is something you can elect to do, so it's elective surgery, but also worse, it's cosmetic, it's not classed as reproductive. And so I think maybe the Human Rights Commission did a lot of consultation, of which I was a part, and it was with the LGBTIQ plus community, but in the room I was in, Campbell LQ, I was the only intersex spokesperson, this is probably four years ago, five years ago. The recommendation was that these procedures be included as reproductive health and attract the necessary rebates. But I can tell you right now that when the now re-elected Victorian state government during the campaign announced that they would be providing free IVF, at their words, not mine, for families and women, inverted commas, no mention of men, let alone anyone else, the procedures that are currently available at free IVF clinics in Victoria do not include microtessie, the some of them do have the ICSI, the transplantation, as a free service, but the surgery is not included probably because the Medicare rebates still don't apply. So for every other procedure, there's a bulk bill. For us, it's still ten to $15,000 unless you happen to come across a compassionate doctor, surgeon, and there are a few out there who are willing to do it for a lesser price. And I have met one such doctor who, hearing my friend's story, was so shocked, we went into a a separate room and had a conversation and he offered to do the procedure for free. But no couple should ever be discriminated against when all they're trying to do is do what everyone takes for granted, either having a child or having access to the technology that enables them to have a child. As a person who's a part of the LGBTIQA plus community, I'm male and heterosexual, but I'm part of that group because I'm intersex. And because I'm intersex, that and because of how I felt about my body and also because of the social challenges, picking up cues, things like that, I basically, one, avoided relationships because of intimacy, but also just, I didn't know what to do. I remember when I was in high school, actually ended up at this alternative school with 100 kids and it was better because, you know, kids of different ages knew each other and there was no sport. Brilliant. There was a big gum tree in the middle of it, of the footy oval down on the Mullum Mullum Creek. But as I was in my late teens, I just kept seeing everybody else hooking up. And they even had a little room downstairs next to the woodwork room. Someone had sprayed in spray paint, Sex 82 or something. This has completely compounded me. And I'd just sit in the art room and I'd look at that and I'd see all these kids going in and out and teenagers. And I wanted to be part of that world. And I just didn't know how. And I used to make stupid comments to couples. I know they thought I was an idiot because I just, 
I, I, I couldn't do it. And then I did start to try and have a relationship with someone, and but she was already sexually active. I was too afraid to even kiss. I was just taken for granted at that age. I didn't know what was going on, so she quickly dumped me. And also, I remember at a similar age, I was actually probably 20 and or 19 or something, and I went to a friend's sister's, younger sister's, 18th at a pub, and there was a, a same-age person chatting me up, flirting, and whatever happened, we ended up back at her place. And within a week after that, we didn't have penetrative sex or anything like that, but I think our, maybe our genital was touched or something. But all I know is that all her friends came back to me saying that I'd given her gonorrhea. And I knew so little then, I didn't even understand that I couldn't possibly have gonorrhea because I'd never been intimate with anyone so instead, it again just compounded my fears and ate up and they teased me or they took it and it shut me down seriously for another few years. So I just had this fear that I was carrying these things and that I was infectious and I was a danger to women and it was like no one, and any of my friends here in this now would, would, would not know that and if they were part of it would be shocked probably to hear that and yeah, it just again compounded my fears and my avoidance and stuff and then when I was at the zoo I met a lovely person and we were actually intimate and she didn't notice downstairs and things were good but just after a few months I just I couldn't I actually what happened was I started to fear that she'd want to have children and even though I didn't know I couldn't have children I was so convinced I couldn't I actually broke off the relationship only because one I couldn't tell her why I made up some stupid excuse. But it was literally because if we went deeper into a relationship, what if I couldn't what if we couldn't have kids? And I broke it off. And then some friends at a mud brick out in Chum Creek, we're all hippies and whatever. They knew my story and so it was another eight years later. They took me to a Confest, which is an alternative lifestyle festival where it's not only clothes optional but ninety percent of people don't wear any. And I'd never been seen naked in public before, probably since I was five or something. And but I do feel that my friends knew this was an opportunity for me if they took me. And we camped opposite, in a lagoon kind of area, on the, probably on the Murray somewhere, like Moama or whatever, opposite this mud bath. And this is an important story for me to tell because this is actually probably the most profound thing that's ever happened. I always wore board shorts. So I always told my parents from the age of, again seven or eight if I had to wear speedos which was at the local swimming pool I got out early as I shared earlier if we went swimming at the surf beaches and we did Ocean Grove every year I wore board shorts through all those years and on or as soon as they became available or popular and I just said that's it that's what I wear I didn't give a reason it was because I couldn't be seen I felt I couldn't be seen and so there is actually a picture of me at that festival wearing a pair of board shorts but I walked into the middle of the lagoon and halfway across from the camp to the mud bath, I just became 100% aware that I was at a threshold point. So I took off my board shorts, walked back to the camp, threw them back to my friends and then walked, and it was deep water, so I walked, swam, whatever, to the other side. As soon as I got out of the water, I went into the mud bath. So it would have been like two seconds where I was exposed covered myself in mud and then sand and whatever and looked back towards the camp as it dried on me and I thought, I'm going to walk the long way back to camp, covered, sure enough, in mud and sand. So I walked back to camp, walked through the camp where my friends were sitting on a picnic rug and I went into the water and by then it was all hard, like on my body, I could hardly walk. 
and head, everything was covered. And I got to the centre of the lagoon and it was I felt like a spaceman because I couldn't feel my head through as it all washed away. And all the mud was gone and my board shorts were on the shore. But it was when that mud and when that sand was washing away, it was 20 plus years of fear, anxiety, hiding away daily rituals of covering up. It literally was washing away from me. And I remember just looking at myself in that lagoon completely naked and thinking, this is it, this is it. And I I walked back to my camp and I stood in front of my friends completely naked and they knew exactly what was going on. There's very few photos ever taken at Confest of anyone, but I basically just stood there with my arms straight out and my legs in this kind of moment of total physical, cellular, whatever, soul exhilaration. And they snapped a photo, which I've still got. I think it was relief. It was also that moment where it was okay. Like I was just completely, I was in a place where it was more normal to be as I was in that moment than when I entered the lagoon with my board shorts on. I just felt really strongly there was no judgment and ridicule. The thing I feared all these years is no one noticed and no one cared. And it was like I'm 30 years old and I'm standing there and it's, yeah, here we are. And keep in mind, got at that point in time, the way they did it, I had two weekly testosterone injections. my, My voice had become deeper. I was starting to grow body hair. I was starting to, within that community, find the courage to talk to women. And it was actually at a festival two years later where I ran a chanting workshop with another friend. We went from camp to camp trying to find drums and goddess statues and whatever. And we ran a chanting workshop. And after someone who was actually camped nearby and had attended the workshop came up to me and said, are you the guy who ran the workshop? And I said, yeah, do you think we should do another one? And she helped run the next one the next night. And then we met up in Melbourne at an African drumming event in Fitzroy. And I didn't have a licence then because one of my other fears was driving. She drove me home and we just looked at each other and I said, would you like to be like my girlfriend or something? So imagine someone at 15, 16 saying that, not someone at 32. And she said, yeah, and we're actually together for two and a half years. So in terms of liberation, sexual liberation, it was the first time I'd ever felt a passion, like absolutely zero fear of taking my clothes off or being with some intimately. And quite possibly, certainly the first time I felt a level of love. Still trying to figure all that out. Love, I figure, is lots of levels of depth in a whole lot of different ways including my current amazing relationship that i'm now having but yeah because i stayed involved in the yoga for still now 35 years and we've got a festival coming up which i've been involved in for 16 years and i'm now the MC. like i went from not talking a human known language at the age of four to now being a public speaker and stuff there's been a long journey in between but in terms of relationships yeah there was that one for two and a half years and then again after that, and not another one for eight years or ten years until 2009. And all through those years, anguish and poetry about wanting to meet some. Where is I love? Where is this? Where is that? Been a, there's been long periods between meeting and all of, the, all of those meetings have not happened 
necessarily in traditional social. I don't know what how people meet, but the last one was online and my parameters were someone within 20Ks with no pets and no kids and able to jump on a Jetstar special on a Friday night at the drop of a hat. And I got message from this person who lives, beautiful woman who lived 150 kilometres away and has three teenage children and two dogs. And I'm like, which fairies are out there changing my criteria? And yet we met, we found we have a lot of stuff in common and we drive back and forth and go through our challenges and intersect. My variations definitely impacted our relationship, hormones and levels of libido and blah, blah, blah. But just have incredible support and we support each other. I feel extremely fortunate to be where I am doing what I'm doing now. One of, one of the things I think that's important to touch on is the intersex community being in, involved. We became part of the acronym very much because of the human rights challenges, experiences of many intersex people and the alignment, if you like, of those human rights abuses and experiences that perhaps aligned with the experiences of some, certainly some transgender people, but also, of course, the gay, lesbian experiences of social discrimination and ostracization and pain and so forth even today actually had my parents not conceived me in 1966 had i been in my mum's womb from 1970 onwards there's an 80 or 90 percent chance at that time that i would have been terminated and today 2022 with six chromosomes like myself that are not typical male or female the 60 percent chance even here in Melbourne, Australia, that the pregnancy would be terminated. I think there's human rights abuses around the reproductive stuff that I spoke of earlier, the right to procreate, perhaps. There's education, human rights, the cognitive challenges that six chromosome kids experience. We need NDIS and speech pathology and physiotherapy and occupational therapy and psychological support and for ADHD and a whole lot of things throughout our lives. In fact, when my psychiatrist diagnosed me with ADHD, at the age of 50, he apologised on behalf of the medical fraternity that I had suffered for so long without any support, and it was a genuine apology. So we are part of the, call it the acronym, that the LGBTIQ plus community for a range of reasons, and we do stand on the platform of our community, our broad community, and the first time I actually ever did was at Better Together in Melbourne at the Town Hall, where... Andrea and I were given eight minutes as a spotlight at the end. We are given five minutes or four minutes, but we begged and made it eight. And we stood up there at the end of that conference and each shared a bit about ourselves, our chromosomes, our different life experiences and so forth. And the room of two or three hundred people was silent because the majority of them in the room were LGBTQ and had no idea only five years ago about what intersex was, and yet we've been part of this acronym for a long time. And so it's very triggering for me when terms like gender and sexual diversity are used as synonyms for the entire LGBTIQ plus community. It's not only intersex people that are as likely to be heterosexual as the rest the broader community and cisgender is the broader community. There are other groups within the acronym for, who, for where that is the case. When heteronormative is used as an antonym constantly, it's triggering. And there are queer is used as a synonym, despite the fact that they're embraced by the younger community but triggering for the older 
community and it's wonderful that the younger community embrace it and some older ones as well of course but it just needs to be understood that terms like this should not be used as a way of describing us all because when that happens one i don't feel part of the conversation two i and many other intersex advocates don't feel that people have heard us we've been on that many platforms for so long now saying exactly the same thing when people leave the i out of the acronym even though they're actually referring to us all i don't mind if it's a program a strategy a medical policy or research that's just about trans people or just about gay and lesbian bi people to just use that part of the acronym of course but when you mean us all don't leave us out we often say eyes for insects not invisible there's multiple meanings things behind that but listeners go to google type in independent australia which is an online news service here in australia Type in Independent Australia, Eyes for Insects Not Invisible, and you'll get to read a bit about my story and also insect advocacy in Australia. And you'll hear all these messages. You'll be able to click on links to information, Insects Human Rights Australia and Peer Support Australia. We are part of the community for a range of reasons. We totally respect the use of terms and terminology where it's correct, but it is incredibly frustrating when one example i was involved in the consultation for the now current 10-year victorian state government disability plan because of the range of disabilities experienced by sex chromosome variation intersex children teenagers adults i invested a lot of my time off work annual leave to participate at Etihad Stadium or whatever it was called in these all-day forums. Earlier this year, the policy was released, 2022 to 2032. And in referencing the LGBTIQA plus community, they refer to gender and sexually diverse people only. Invisible. And then someone had the audacity when I made inquiries about to say, oh, but wouldn't your disabilities be covered off by the other disabilities anyway? So it doesn't really matter stop effectively continuing our experience of being invisible language guides do the same thing it's just so frustrating to hear about local councils state governments federal governments being involved in teaching their service providers about lgbtiq plus people and intersex people not being consulted and as a result including rainbow tick and now we have the yellow tick and you can go to the websites to hear it about how to get yellow tick accreditation so you know what the life experience of intersex people is and how to support them and importantly to eliminate assumptions that what applies to lgbtq questioning or queer people that what applies to them applies to us statistically 1.7 percent of the population are intersex we as intersex advocates know that it's more like 2.2 if you can break up a person like that but my intersex variation is not rare. It's one in 500. 60 or 70% don't know that they have a sex chromosome variation. A huge number of intersex people don't know they're intersex, but it doesn't mean they don't experience things in their life, challenges associated with being intersex. They just don't know that's the reason. It took me, as I say, 30 years until I was willing to speak about myself to anyone and probably another 20 until I even met another intersex person, actually. I started the Victorian Kleinfelder Syndrome support group with another XY person in around 2006. 
because we were asked to speak at the Children's Hospital at the Murdoch Institute in Genetics. And some doctors and nurses stood up there and said, oh, no, XXY person would know there was anything going on for them until they reached puberty. And then I spoke next. And I just zeroed in with my eyes to each of those speakers and just said, everything you just said is total bullshit. I've known since I was seven. And so we, me and this other guy got together at the end and we formed our first support group. And when we tried to get XSY, mainly males as it is, not exclusively, but mainly males, XSY to, to come together, it was amazing. We opened up, we sh- shared tearfully as we naturally do. We recognised the commonalities, but then we couldn't get them to come back. They just wanted to continue with their lives, really. They didn't want to be on stages and necessarily even sharing with other guys. But in terms of advocacy, there's, there's 10 or 15 or 12 or whatever it is. There's not many. So you're going to find one or two in every state and they're not going to be regionally based. But whatever the population of whatever municipality we're in here, that we just statistically know there's going to be a lot. Just take the number and do a 2% calculation and that's how many are statistically likely to be out there. But there is another side to it and that is for many, and this was true for me as well when people told me only six years ago that being XXY meant I was intersex. As soon as I say to anyone in the general community or anyone in the LGBTIQ plus community that I'm part of that community, they assume I'm gay or not cisgender. That is an assumption of the community still because, as I say, the language keeps being reinforced by those communities. Parents of intersex kids fear that if their children are known to be LGBTIQ+, they're going to have extra challenges, burdens, teasing and assumptions that don't apply to them. Safe schools doesn't cover intersex, but it's supposed to be about all of us. So if a school's teaching safe schools and an intersex child is known to be intersex, the kids doing the safe schools program will assume that intersex child is gay or whatever, sexually or gender diverse. So parents and lots and lots of adults, from my point of view that I know with sex chromosome variations, either don't want to align with the term intersex or don't consider themselves to be intersex, which is also reinforced by the medical profession such as endocrinology. My sex chromosome variation XXY is the most common intersex variation, or sex chromosome variations are the most common. We're the less heard because we don't necessarily have the ambiguous genitalia and the human rights and the unnecessary surgeries and all that. So that community have become very inappropriately so vocal about that. And I've been very much part of that and supporting that journey as well. But we can't find each other, let alone you trying to find us. Mm. That's the reality. And that's why I'm here as hopefully the continuing Victorian rep for Intersex Peer Support Australia because a big part of our journey is finding each other let alone speaking for our community another big part of that is the challenges with certain ethnic and cultural groups around perceptions of what it might mean to be intersex finding our first nations intersex people and finding ways and avenues into engaging with that community like we're just trying to find ourselves let alone others trying to find us. So that's why I've come up from Melbourne only an hour and a half. And as I recently realised, as I say, my great-great-grandfather acquired quite a few acres, 71 I think it is, down near Malmesbury. I'm, part of my DNA has been kicking around these parts for a while. But yeah, that's the reason why. So 
Okay, as I said at the start of this, my name's Paul Byrne Moroni. It's very important to me that people understand not everyone wants their, say, surname known. Personally, I want you to know who I am. I'm not afraid to be known as an insect person in our community. My surname is spelled B-Y-R-N-E hyphen M-O-R-O-N-E-Y. You can find me on Facebook. You can send me a message, reference this podcast, and then we can talk. And in time, there will be other ways. But it's worth knowing too that Intersex Peer Support Australia is for intersex people. It's not an information service for non-intersex people. That's Intersex Human Rights Australia. And again, if you look on Google at Independent Australia and Eyes for Intersex Not Invisible, read that article and use those links. You'll get all the information you need about our Australian community and ways that you can support information, fact sheets. It's all there. I started recently using Tubi, which is like a yeah, non-subscription TV and movie streaming service. And only a few days ago, I found Intersection, which was brilliant documentary by one of our uh, intersex friends and advocates, Marnie. And it, it shows Marnie's life journey and how Marnie went across the world just to find other intersex people and has some footage actually of the first ever gathering of about six or eight intersex people. So as I'm saying, like we're still trying to find each other. And if you find Intersection, Marnie's documentary, however you find it, it, it was eye-opening for me, it'll be eye-opening for you. You'll see the diversity. It does include XXY people as well, AIS people as well, people with various other variations. Not all variations have a name, as in not a medically defined kind of name. It's just intersex means people who are born with sex characteristics that differ from the typical male-female in simple terms. Go to the Intersex Human Rights Australia website, read the Darlington Statement. That's our call to arms. It's our communique to the community. It was from 2017, I think. It's evolving and it will change and the language will have already changed in some cases. But we ask individuals and organisations to affirm that statement. But again, it's not enough to read it and affirm it. It needs to be applied you need to look at the section of that document that applies to your workplace, your service, your life, and think of ways that you can make the changes that respond to what we're asking for. I know councils that have affirmed it in Victoria. They affirmed it, and then they don't do anything. Nothing happens until people like me turn up and get on their reference groups and make things happen. But there aren't enough of us. There are 79 councils just in Victoria. There's perhaps five or six advocates. We can't be everywhere and we're exhausted. And it's not fair to have to educate over and over and over and over again. No, I've organised panels for International Insects Day, which is October 26, at government, at health centres across Melbourne, at corporate, at banks. We all have done in various ways at different times. We've done, I've organised panels and talks at national conferences all in that period of time from the age of 50 to now 56. I've done all of that. We've had parliamentary breakfasts in Canberra with 20 par parliamentarians and, of course, with Janet Rice and Penny Wong were there. And 
no one from the Conservative government, by the way. We've done all this, we keep doing all this, and yet every single day I went to the Beyond Blue website because depression is inherent in sex chromosome variations. I have depression on treated for that. Counselling and medication. They have an LGBTIQ-like group, only refers to gender and sexually diverse people. Fair enough, the group was started around 2015, but it's not been changed. We're not heard. And you do begin to wonder, why bother? Why bother? The feeling is that you're not heard. The deeper experience is that no one cares, genuinely cares. And we just stay invisible. So that's all we're asking. project was made possible with the financial assistance of Victoria's Pride Regional Activation Program and Midsummer Festival and with the support of the Mount Alexander Shire Council, the Mount Alexander Shire LGBTIQA Plus Steering Group and the Queer Now Radio Program on Main FM 94.9. This podcast has been produced by the Queer and Now team Shireen Clue and Amalie O'Hara at Main FM 94.9. Editing and original music by Amy Chapman. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such a wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800.